keeping in mind that the point of neuroscience is is not to engineer something is important. And, and that allows us to sort of identify like, well, what aspects of it are important. I think it will continue to be important though, because the brain continues to be sort of like the only example of this kind of general intelligence that, you know, we want to, to construct in AI. Most likely the most exciting kinds of AGI that we're going to come out, come up with is going to be tightly interconnected with humans and is, you know, sort of going to be interwoven throughout our society. And so we'll, we'll need to have a good understanding of what induces cooperative behavior. There's always challenges. There's always sort of internal conflicts between our altruistic impulses and also you know, like acting in our own self-interests. This is Brain Inspired. Hey guys, it's Paul. Who do you think would win in an altruism competition between you and an AI agent? If that AI agent was created by Jane Wong and her team at DeepMind, uh, you would have some stiff competition. Today my guest is Jane Wong from DeepMind, and that is one thing that she's been working on lately. We talk about her multi-agent reinforcement learning work to explore how cooperation uh, can emerge from interacting reinforcement learning agents which will become more important as AI becomes even more ubiquitous uh, than it is now uh, and has to uh, work well with us and with other AI agents. Uh, It's also a potential way for us to learn about our own altruistic potential uh, and how we might better reach that potential. The altruism or cooperation work is actually the last topic that we discuss. To get there, we review the meta-reinforcement learning framework she helped develop where a recurrent neural network's weights were slowly trained on a set of tasks such that the recurrent network could then by itself learn other related tasks without any more synaptic weight changes. And there's a story there about how these processes map pretty well onto what we know about how dopamine and the prefrontal cortex operate in brains. And before any of that, we discuss at length her experience working at DeepMind Uh, having come from an academic background in uh, cognitive science, complexity science, and neuroscience. Uh, And we focus a lot on the relationship and exchange between neuroscience and AI, since Jane has plenty of insight uh, about both sides. Show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 83. If you value this podcast and you want to support it and hear the full versions of all the episodes, and occasional separate bonus episodes, you can do that for next to nothing through Patreon. Go to braininspired.co and click the red Patreon button there. My thanks to Jane for a very enjoyable discussion. These are exciting times in the study of and in the engineering of intelligence. And thank you for listening. Was it over a year ago that I'd asked you to come on? (laughs) Yes, and um, yeah, and I'm really glad that we were finally able to, to connect on this I was going back through your uh, the recent episodes, and um, and I noticed that like all, almost all of your um, the people that you've had on are people that I you know really uh, like love their work. I I really fo- love to follow their 
their work mm. and, and they're, they're scientists that I really respect. And so it just kind of feels like um, it, it's all the, the kinds of topics that I'm most interested in. So I'm really happy to to be able to come on. Well, I mean, you, you fit right in, of course. Yeah. Um, but it, it was funny because you seemed surprised <laughs> that I that I reached out again. You, <laughs> you oh. thought I'd maybe forgotten about you or something. But no, not me. Oh, well, I'm, I'm very happy that you did. Anyway, um, it's good to have you on. And uh, we're here today. Of course, we're going to solve intelligence. Isn't that, is yeah. that DeepMind's mantra still? It, uh, yes, it is. Technically, our mission is to solve intelligence and then use it to solve everything else. Ah, um, right. And of course, that, that last bit is, is quite overloaded, but um, <laughs> yeah. I think it's very important. Well, you uh, had a, I guess, brief career in academia, right? Uh, and, and then transitioned to DeepMind. So you've been on, of course, DeepMind is not really not academia. I, you wouldn't call DeepMind mm-hmm. industry but I want to talk just for a few minutes about like what the experience of transitioning was like and what DeepMind is like relative to uh, academia. So, so what was your experience? I mean, you say you say brief, but it doesn't feel like academia was very brief for me because I mean, if you think about it, I, I've really been in some form of an academic um, environment for like twenty plus years uh, at the point. So I did a postdoc um, before yeah. going to DeepMind. I, that's that's you know in twenty years that's going to look pretty brief I think. I guess so. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe relative, it, relatively speaking, it's it's um, a bit brief. I think one of the main um, things that that's you know one of my main experiences about transitioning to industry uh, from academia was at first just kind of being unsure and a bit scared about what it was going to be like. Um, just leaving academia is quite a daunting thing when the whole time that, you know, I did my, my PhD, my postdoc, it's sort of all that I know. And, and sort of the whole point of being there was kind of to drive you towards getting a, like a, a faculty, faculty position. position. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's, let's pause just for a second. So people know, I mean, you have a background in complexity and in physics, and, and that kind of led you into the neuroscience work, right? Is that was, was that the uh, it's the I, chain I've of had, Yeah, I've had a pretty circuitous path to get to where I'm at, I think. Everybody says that, Jane. Everybody says that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's sure. probably true for everybody. Uh, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's not that securitist, but um, I, I started out in physics. Um, so I did my PhD in applied physics, where I was um, more doing computational neuroscience. Um, so simulation, simulating complex um, dynamic networks, which are supposed to mimic um, like memory consolidation and yeah. uh, memory interaction within the brain. Um, and so from that, you know, I, I also, uh, worked a bit in complex systems, in graph theory, um, and m- more on the dynamical systems side. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but I didn't get into cognitive neuroscience until my postdoc. Oh, okay. But you were working with, uh, well, I, I'd have to look at your CV again and your publication record, but I thought you did a little bit of, uh, neuroscience work also in, in graduate school. No matter. Well, it was, uh, I, I would say it was compu, I would call it computational neuroscience. Um, it yeah. was, you know, setting up, uh, like neural, like spiking neural network models. So, but I, it wasn't ex- that experimental. Um, I did a bit of experiment with like cell cultures and things like that. See, I, I want to change this notion of what people think of when they, when you, when one says neuroscience, when I hear neuroscience, I don't think experiment. I think of all of it. I think of the theory and the experimentation. The modeling, to me, computational, cognitive, it's all neuroscience mm-hmm. to me. And I don't know why it, 
it's not that way for everyone else as well. <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of weird. I think once you get into the field, people love to put labels on things and say, oh, that's not neuroscience, that's cognitive science, or that's psychology, right. or that's... Right. Um, but I'm sure, like, yeah, from the outside, it all just looks the same. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I definitely did work in neuroscience in, um, in grad school, but I'd say it's a completely different kind of neuroscience. So okay. I wasn't, you know, super, uh, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was an expert on sort of the brain regions and, um, <laughs> more of the cognitive aspects. Like, like I had very specific knowledge about the hippocampus and, um, you know, how to model it. And, and that was sort of my experience of it. Um, and then in, in, in uh, my postdoc, I um, got a much broader sort of perspective about neuroscience and cognitive science and doing um, human experimentation, mm. um, which, I mean, maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but, but to me, I, I feel like um, the cognitive science is a bit closer uh, to AI than more of the maybe like electrophysiological um, type experiments. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about this too, in terms of like Mars levels and things, because I think that when people think of neuroscience, they also think of Mars implementation level as if neuroscience maps directly onto the implementation level. And, you know, what you're saying is that cognitive science would be more like the algorithmic and computational levels uh, of analysis. But I don't know, maybe this is a fault of mine. I see them all as spanning everything. And when I think of neuroscience, I don't just think of recording single neurons, you know, so um, maybe that, that's a fault of mine. I mean, I, I think everybody could interpret it the way that they um, that they prefer. <laughs> I, I think it's more just a matter of scale, um, and also maybe the um, the thing that you're studying. So in cognitive hmm. science and more like related to psychology, you're you're kind of studying the um, the cognitive function itself. You're 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 trying to study, you know, what do people, what are people actually doing in this particular situation? What are they actually learning? Um, whereas if you are moving more to like molecular neurobiology or things like that, you're looking at the mechanisms. And so it's kind of like a, a slight difference in terms of the, the thing that you're studying and your motivation. And I think for, for me, AI is more about the cognitive function itself rather than the implementation, um, at, at least with regard to neuroscience. Yes, I can see that. Um, I, I just think that one should always have the big picture, you know, across level uh, in mind, right? <laughs> While you're, it's good to keep you, the context in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Why, okay. why are we doing this? Yeah, for sure. So anyway, so then you, you had this background and you went and, you know, you did a uh, postdoc. Yeah, I did. Um, so I performed, you know, psychological experiments with humans looking at um, learning and decision making uh, and memory um, and also doing neuroimaging. So with fMRI and EEG and also a bit of work with uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a kind of non-invasive simulation that you can do with um, with humans. Have you ever been stimulated? I have, yes, uh, of course. I hear it's like a like a rubber band pop. Um, it depends on the kind of uh, stimulation protocol. Um, but well, I was going to say like we're all involved in each other's experiments. So uh, like other of course. other researchers yeah. in the lab, I'm like in their experiments and they're mine. Um, so yeah, I've had TMS done plenty of times. It's uh, so I was doing repetitive um, stimulation for the most part, and in that case, uh, you know, you're stimulating at maybe like ten or twenty hertz per second. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a little bit of a buzzing. Um, and if you do that long enough, it can start to hurt. But just just mm. if you just do a single, you know, pop, it just um, it doesn't hurt at all. And uh, and that that can do crazy things like you know move your thumb or like maybe even move your entire arm. 
Oh, does it have you have you had the? Well, first of all, I, we should just briefly say what what TMS actually is. So you're actually um, there's a thing that's sitting out just outside of your head, and there's a magnetic pulse that's that you can use to like target very specific locations in the brain and stimulate um, neural activity or ablate neural activity. I don't know what the most recent. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. It, yeah, so depending on the kind of uh, protocol that you're using, you can either do um, inhibition or excitation, um, and you're essentially just like inducing electrical activity in a very focal part of um, the cortical surface of your brain. Um, and yeah, and you can find all sorts of effects from affecting people's judgments to affecting memory to, you know, maybe you can also even induce um, like visual effects if you do it in, you know, occipital cortex. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And it's a, it's a hugely kind of growing and exciting um, field of study right now. Did you feel like, so did you have a thumb twitch? What was your experience? Did you, did it elicit a behavior in you when you did it? Well, so th- the thumb twitching is actually uh, what we do to try and get a motor threshold. Um, because it turns oh. out for every single person, depending on, you know, just the thickness of your skull or other <laughs> biological aspects, you will have a different your, your threshold. laziness. Yeah. Yeah, right. maybe. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, every person is different. So um, so I'm going to have a different sort of a, um, threshold at which my uh, my thumb is going to react, for instance. So we, okay. we sort of use that to calibrate um, the amount of induction or like, you know, energy that we want to be putting in. And then we use that and, uh, and then we, you know, put it over a, a part of your, um, your brain that we're, we're interested in studying. Um, so for us, it was to try and, uh, induce, um, like memory formation or to enhance memory. Mm. Um, just like associative memory. And so, and you can also do things like try uh, or look at the effect on functional connectivity, which is what I, I did. Because we, oh, yeah. we understand that, you know, you have these different kinds of networks, like functional, um, functional brain connections in the brain uh, where different regions of your brain are sort of functionally connected to each other, meaning that, that they're sort of, they seem to be interacting if you analyze the activity. Um, so, so you can, uh, we can detect changes in, um, in that network as a result of doing stimulation. Oh, that's cool. But anyway, okay, so you're a veritable neuroscientist uh, at that point. And then DeepMind steals you away, but you were, you, you were <laughs> starting to say that you were a little wary of leaving academia. Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing that sort of gets like drilled into you in academia is that like if you leave, you'll never be, never be able to to go back. You know, like um there's kind of this like weird culture where it seems like if you leave then oh, you just given up or something and then like you'll never be yeah. able to come back and so it you're feels like you're closing a door. But I I that wasn't my experience at all. Um I feel like at maybe it's just, you know, cuz it's the kind of place that I went, but neuro uh, but DeepMind is, um, I would say, it's like 75% uh, research environment. Yeah. So right. um, I publish now, like more than I ever did. Um, I'm able to be like fully in the um, academic world and to keep up to date on, you know, whatever, like kind of literature that I'm interested in. I mean, I guess the, the kind of research that I'm doing is definitely different. Um, I'm not doing so much of the um, experimental neuroscience side of it, although we do have a lot of collaborations um, with yeah. academic labs. So we, you know, we can publish on on that kind of stuff or, or like work with people that um, are doing those kinds of experiments. Um, and a lot of those are, are coming out as well from our 
from our team. So, so you haven't you haven't really worked in the industry then? Um, I don't know because DeepMind is this weird in between kind of place, and so I don't know if it's even fair to ask you what it's yeah. like outside of academia because it's like you're halfway outside or something. I don't know how how would you characterize? Yeah, that? I think that's right. Yeah, um, I, you know, our sort of uh, model is is more like Bell Labs. I think. Um, I th- yeah, I think yeah. We, we try to like model it. Um, after those kinds of like research institutes, they were like primary research institutes. Um, and I would say the, the main differences to academia are essentially that we don't have to worry about funding and grants, which is amazing. Jesus, I never really yeah. enjoy that part of it. Um, <laughs> and w- we can also collaborate much more readily, I think. So we don't have this notion of sort of like, individual labs and, and, you know, that work very closely within themselves and then like kind of sometimes collaborate with other labs, but it has to be sort of set up and, and they can take a while. Um, for us, you know, I can reach out to somebody else on a different team and just start work on a project just, you know, immediately. Mm. Um, and there are so many people that do different things at DeepMind that it's really easy to sort of reach across um, fields or like across like, um, or to find somebody else with a different field of expertise that can mm. help me, you know, do something. So, um, so that is, that's almost like in some cases it can be a difficulty be- to kind of just stop forming new collaborations. Um, because at <laughs> yeah. some point I feel like I have too many things on my plate and I need to sort of like <laughs> narrow down and just say, okay, no, I gotta, I gotta like focus here. So decadent. Yeah, exactly. What's the general atmosphere like? Everybody happy? <laughs> Do you mind? I mean, is everyone optimistic? <laughs> and uh, or and, and we'll come back to this in a little bit when we talk about the the progress of AI. Mm. But relative to an academic lab, let's say, and we all have only had experience with a few different labs, so you know we have small in to say. And some labs are have very different character and flavor than other labs, but. Does it feel looser? Yeah. Does it feel more business-like than a, an academic lab? Or about the same? I imagine it's about the same. The only thing I, way I can describe it is it feels like it moves faster. But I, I don't know <laughs> if, if I'm conflating that with just like the fact that I've switched from neuroscience to AI, because yes. it that's could be the, that... The, yes. Yeah, that's AI my, just seems guess. to move fast everywhere. Uh, I can't imagine what it's like to be a grad student in AI right now and to have to submit to conferences every few oh, months. God. It yeah. just seems like... Um, yeah, yeah, it seems so intense, but uh, it does feel like it it moves faster. Um, papers can, you know, projects can be done and and out in a few months, as opposed to you know before I'd work on something for a couple of years. There there yeah. still are those kinds of projects at DeepMind that you know are uh, large scale and we want to do right, um, and so we'll work on them for a while, and you know they'll be like a, like a large piece of work, you know, like AlphaGo, and that came out. A lot of people worked on that for a long time. But the rewards, I mean, you work a lot on reinforcement learning, and the rewards come much quicker in AI than in neuroscience. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know what you mean by rewards. <laughs> well, um, it, if your project can be done in a month or two months relative to a year or two years. So there's a longer delay in neuroscience between when you begin and when you are, quote unquote, rewarded with a publication or, you know, whatever. I guess, yeah, that's true. And, and in fact, in, in AI, you can just sort of release your, your work on archive. You, know, you don't even need to work. wait for the whole five cycles of review, like submitting to different journals and things like that, which we've all well, gone through. Yeah, that, that's happening in neuroscience now, too. And I don't know if maybe AI has led the way there. But So it's, it sounds like the transition was fine. You, you, you had slight reservations, but uh, you, I'm sure you're glad you did. 
Oh yeah, yeah. No, no regrets um, whatsoever on that front. So you know, science is this beautiful thing, but it's also frustrating in that the more you learn, uh, the more you understand how little you actually know, <laughs> how much more there is to learn. Essentially, and I'm wondering, you know, how your experience um, in neuroscience and now in AI uh, has changed your perspectives on on either neuroscience and or AI. I, I, you already talked mm-hmm. about how nice it is that AI goes faster, which, yeah, I just <laughs> I, I was jealous of even when I was in, still in neuroscience. But Well, I'm not, I'm not going to make a value judgment about that. I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's nicer or not nicer. <laughs> you know, it, it's just faster. <laughs> Sometimes I miss like being able to spend, you know, five months on one paper and just like think very thoroughly about it. But has it changed your, you know, when you, do you, do you have less reverence, more reverence for the brain, for instance, things like that? I'm, well, so I'm definitely much more informed about um, AI and machine learning than I was a few years ago. And I think mm-hmm. having that kind of background allows me to see neuroscience in a new light, because you can sort of compare the two. In particular, the um, the goals and motivations of AI are almost like the opposite of what they are in neuroscience. Maybe not the opposite, but um, it's coming at it from a different perspective. So in AI, mm-hmm. the um, the point of it is to try and figure out how can I engineer a system such that I can create learning that's, yeah. um, you know, either human-like or something that, you know, can do um, superhuman kind of uh, cognition, like, uh, you know, play Go or something. Um, whereas with neuroscience, you're, um, you're taking a system that already can do that, you know, <laughs> human level intelligence or like even animal level intelligence. And you're trying to figure out, you're trying to dissect it down and see like, well, what is that system? You're trying to characterize that system. So there's sort of like two sides of the same coin to me. Um, and it's, it's very interesting for me to think about it like that because then that can tell you much more, you know, what, what, what can I take away from neuroscience research for AI? Um, what should I take away from neuroscience research? Um, and what are the limitations and what I can take away? So, yeah. So I, I think that that's, you know, uh, allows me to, I guess, form, like manage my expectations of what, um, what you can take away from neuroscience. I think a lot of, you know, AI researchers that, um, that I've spoken to and, and have talked to over the years maybe expect like they're a little bit disappointed that that neuroscience just doesn't like give them an answer about like well how do you how do you program this particular aspect <laughs> yeah. of cognition right um you know what 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 why can't we just take like what we know in neuroscience and just sort of like implement it um well the reason is that it's not neuroscience isn't trying to engineer anything all it can do is sort of tell you this is how one system did it um or or not even that, you know, like it's such a, it's such a hard thing to, to dissect down, um, because there are so many levels that you can figure out a neural system at, you know, you can talk about the cellular level, you can talk about, um, the, the neuronal level, um, talk about the biological level, you can talk about the, um, the functional level, like functionally, what, what is it trying to do? And so you have to, not only manage your expectations, but also identify the right level that you want to be taking these um, these lessons from. Mm. So I don't think it particularly helps you to be looking at, um, you know, action potentials and specifically how, you know, signals are, are transducted from neuron to neuron. 
right. um, if you're trying to set up an art, like an AI system. Well, part of the problem is we don't even know yet what is actually important, right? You know, yes, exactly. for for a, a given cognitive function, like what is the right level to even examine it? And something that I have come to appreciate more and more the older I get is how young neuroscience still is. I mean, it doesn't seem like it is, but relative to something like physics, um, neuroscience is really new. And uh, I mean, it's just, inter- you know, when I started in neuroscience, it, looking at like the classic papers, right? Recording single units and just characterizing a, a single neuron's activity, you know, <laughs> and you, and it had been around already for a little while, but it was incredibly young at that point still. And, and it really still is. So neuroscience is slower, uh, inherently slower than AI. It cycles, goes on, you know, um, slower mm-hmm. cycles. And uh, so at this point, at this, like right now, is neuroscience informative for AI still, or has AI just um, in mass said, all right, we can't wait for neuroscience. We've got to move forward. Because, you know, obviously AI is beneficial to neuroscience. Well, uh, you know, people might not, like neuroscientists might not think that that's quite so obvious. Um, well, as a, I just meant as a tool, but, um, but as theory generators, as theory generation, uh, I think it's p- pretty well accepted at least that there are interesting ideas coming out of AI. Maybe not that it's so helpful yet. But. For not, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, actually, I have a, a lot of thoughts on that, on that that maybe we can get into later. But in terms of um, the, I guess, the, the speed of neuroscience and, um, and how, you know, useful it can be for AI, I think it's got to move at its own pace. I think that keeping in mind that the point of neuroscience is, is, not to engineer something is important. And and that allows us to sort of identify like, well, what aspects of it are important. I think it will continue to be important though, because the brain continues to be sort of what, like the only example of this kind of general intelligence that we're, um, that, you know, we want to, to construct in AI. And I think that we can continue to learn from it and we can continue to always take um, lessons from it. And I'm really grateful that there are people out there that are willing to continue to, to do experiments on it, um, on the brain. Mm-hmm. And like, t- to me, they're sort of doing all the hard work and I can just sort of reap the the rewards <laughs> and the lessons that they learn for, for, for my work. Yeah. AI is where it is today. Deep learning is because of neural networks, which are made up of artificial neurons, units, which, you know, emulate the way, you know, really, really crudely emulate the way that brains are connected and function really crudely. Um, but so that that basis was already there. And it's interesting to me to think about how much we still have yet to learn about how brains operate and how they collectively give rise to higher cognitive functions and whether there'll be some discovery, some advance that will then really impactfully inform uh, AI. And I don't know how, when that will be, but it, you know, it feels like it's really ramping up. So I, I don't know what, you know, what, what is your sense of that? Well, I, I think that it's so, so some pretty fascinating kind of areas of advancements um, in like the cognitive science side and the neuroscience side is, um, and being able to essentially quantify like how humans can most efficiently uh, learn about task structure learn mm-hmm. about decision-making. So there are things like Bayesian inference or hierarchical Bayesian learning. 
there are like these kinds of accounts that are, are starting to be constructed um, that show that humans will, you know, perform optimal inference under sort of like um, bounded rationality or different kinds of like resource constraints that allow them to sort of act most optimally in in the situations in, in, that we most naturally find ourselves. Um, and so I think that kind of work is, um, to me, like most related to the kinds of things that we might want to think about in AI. Hmm. And, and that's incidentally also related to meta learning, which is my favorite topic in AI, is, is thinking about, you know, well, how can we set up these systems such that they can uh, learn for themselves these like optimal, like close to Bayes optimal um, ways of performing inference given a particularly like structured set of environments that um, it can be encountered with or a particular mm. set of tasks. Um, so, yeah, so I, th- I think, I think that there's definitely parallels in the way that we can think about human information processing and, and cognition and the ways that we might want to structure our, um, our artificial intelligence agents. Would, would you say as you continue your career that you take, less and less inspiration from neuroscience or more and more, or is it just kind of a rotating cycle? Um, Sorry to harp on this. It's just, (laughs) uh, it's to me, it's, I mean, that's what the show is about is like, you know, the the balance between AI and neuroscience. And so I'm trying to dig down. No, no, no. It's definitely a very interesting question. It is one that uh, I tend to get uh, more often than not. I feel like I definitely want to um, continue to be abreast of, of the latest developments in in neuroscience, um, but I'm quite selective about the kinds of things that I pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're we're now actually getting to a point where um, we can start seeing more of an interactive, like bi-directional flow between AI and neuroscience. Like there are more and more people that are sort of at the intersection. And because of that, I think we're going to start to get you know, more work coming out that that's going to be relevant for both fields. And to me, that's very exciting. So um, I mentioned a bit earlier about like talking about this feedback from AI to neuroscience, where you can think about, so uh, one exciting thing that you can do is you can take, you can take it like a, a, an RL sort of setup that you have, or an agent that is learning on, um, on a particular set of tasks that you constructed um, and you can then analyze it and see, well, what kinds of things has it learned? Um, what uh, are the uh, sort of like biases, inductive biases that it's, it's picked up from the environment? Um, and then from that, you can infer, you can say something about the task requirements that you've presented the agent with. And then um, you can then imagine taking an animal um, and then training that animal on the same set of tasks yeah. and then seeing, well, ha- does it have the same biases um, that agents have? Can it perform to the same level? Can it learn um, the same kinds of structure that an agent can learn? Or, or does it have a lot of its uh, already like sort of preset priors that it's going into this task with? Hmm. And I think that, you know, this is something that, that isn't as well, stu- uh, has been studied as much in neuroscience um, and with animals um, is thinking about, well, what kinds of priors and inductive biases already exist? You know, uh, a lot of, um, laboratory, like, in, 
like task paradigms or make the assumption that an animal just sort of like comes in knowing nothing or like with the Tabula uniform rasa, prior. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, it'll just, and then you train it sort of up to ceiling and then you, 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 uh, you like analyze the neural activity or something like that. Well, that's kind of what the most vanilla neural networks connectionism used to assume as well by, by not structuring yeah. it. But that's changed with CNNs and, and these more structured networks, which, you know, I don't know why I'm saying that because you know all about that, but. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, networks also come, come with these biases as well. I mean, uh, yeah, CNN is a, a kind of an inductive bias. Um, you build in biases all throughout by your choice of architecture and your, yeah. you know, learning algorithm and, and so forth. Um, but the thing is with AI is that we, we know that with animals, we don't know what kinds of biases are already existing. Um, we know that, that there tend to be certain things like, um, they tend to maybe think of color as more of a, a of an irrelevance factor, um, like whereas shape tends to be more task relevant in particular, like categorization tasks. But, you know, there has been as much work done in, in just characterizing the, the priors that, um, that biological uh, learning systems have. So I think, you know, that, that's one thing that um, having done work in, in AI, that's one thing that I've taken away from, uh, from doing that kind of work that I think can be applied to neuroscience. You might get docked for, uh, depending on how you answer this, but uh, there's lots of talk these days about deep learning hitting a, um, coming to a standstill, hit, reaching its limits, right? And I'm wondering, you know, do you think so? Or, uh, <laughs> again, uh, maybe we can go off the record so you won't get docked and pay. But I I've, <laughs> I imagine I know what your answer is going to be. What What do you think? I don't think so. I mean, I think that there's a danger in um, in getting too wrapped up in any one approach or, or to jumping on like a bat, like the bandwagon of, you know, deep learning or like this yeah. particular method of training. And we could just sort of continue to throw more and more data at it. Um, but I think that the field of AI, um, you know, just even beyond deep learning is, um, is so rich and that th there are still so many unexplored regions, um, areas of, of research that we haven't even tapped that, um, yeah, I think that we're, you know, we're at a position where, where we have so much data, we have so much compute that I, I think at any moment we can have a really amazing sort of new algorithm that pops up and it shows us that it sort of opens up an entire new mm. um, way of thinking about, uh, about deep learning and AI. I mean, you know, recently there's been uh, a lot of uh, a lot of excitement around like GPT three um, yeah. stuff coming out of uh, OpenAI. Um, these large scale language models that are just you know they have tons of parameters, they have tons of data, and it's just amazing the kinds of um, of you know like structure that that they've learned and the kinds of things that you can get them to do with the proper prompt. Um, and so a lot of people are are now sort of thinking. Uh, about well, how do we how do we characterize the limits of that? Um, how do we characterize the the kinds of representations that they've learned, and how do we sort of leverage that towards building bigger things and and and, and better models? So yeah. I think we're going to continue to see these kinds of things where um, like these little breakthroughs can can help us to to bootstrap and and to get to you know even better things. Well, it sounds like you might actually get a bonus. I thought you might get dock pay, but maybe if someone listens to this. <laughs> They give you a bonus. 
All right. Well, I mean, I've, I've almost taken you in an hour now just talking about the, the deep mind, and <laughs> but I appreciate you going down that road with me. Um, so let's talk about what was the next big thing, uh, and then you published it, and then and then we're going to talk about some meta meta reinforcement learning, and then we'll talk about some more of your recent work. So I, I talked about uh, meta learning and meta reinforcement learning when I had Matt Botvinnik on the show a long time ago, your colleague, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, but this is work that y- you uh, headed up as well, and you just—I didn't realize that meta learning is like your favorite topic. So it's good that I'm <laughs> going to ask you about it, I suppose. But maybe we can recap the just the story of uh, meta reinforcement learning as it pertains to as it maps onto the prefrontal cortex and the cortico basal ganglia thalamic loops, and and how yeah maybe you, maybe you could just like summarize what you guys found because that'll lead into uh, this more recent work as well yeah so um i mean it, this work is actually kind of a, a series of, of two two papers i would say um because we had an, uh, a paper that was presented at cogsci a couple years before that learning to reinforcement learn which essentially is um looking at meta-learning from a reinforcement learning context. So the idea of meta-learning is that you have these um, multiple nested scales of learning and that you can have um, sort of like an outer loop of learning, which is tuning an inner loop of learning. So um, so essentially you can learn the learning algorithm that um, in the inner loop can sort of perform more quickly or like adapt more quickly um, to new situations. And we, and we call it, you know, meta reinforcement learning because, um, both sort of learning loops are using reinforcement learning. Um, in particular, we use, um, a deep neural network, uh, a, a deep RL agent, um, which is learning through, you know, just, um, like policy gradient methods to optimize for reward over, um, the course of an episode. And every episode, you can sample like a new task with different task parameters. Um, and over the course of seeing enough of these episodes, um, the inner loop is sort of able to quickly adapt. Mm-hmm. So the sort of the simplest example that, that we gave in our paper is, um, is bandit, is just a, a two arm bandit. So, um, a bandit task is sort of like the, the most, uh, the smallest unit of a reinforcement learning problem that you can have, which is still interesting. <laughs> um, because, uh, it's just a single step sort of trial where you're, asked to choose um, from one of two arms. It's just like, imagine like you're in a, you're, you're at a, in Vegas in front of two slot machines. You have to pick one to, to pull. Um, but, but each arm has some uh, fixed, but unknown probability of giving you a reward. Um, and you have to just sort of over the course of um, say a hundred uh, of these trials, figure out which one is the better one to pull. Um, and, and you, but you need to sample both of them because you don't know what the probabilities are, um, because mm-hmm. they're hidden from you. And so you, you need to like sort of take your, um, your past history of observations and then from that figure out, you know, um, how can I best do, um, perform sort of exploration versus exploitation to get the most amount of reward over the course of this episode, um, of, of my like set of experiences with, with this one, um, parameter set. With one, the one bandit machine, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it turns out that, uh, through just using, um, a, just a, a deep RL agent that has, you know, um, just a recurrent memory. So, so the, the, the recurrence is quite important because it needs to be able to integrate, uh, information over time. 
So th- this past history of what it's seen and what it's done and so forth and the kinds of rewards that it's gotten, all that's really important. You guys use like an LSTM for that, right? Yeah, yeah, um, an LSTM. Um, and from that, it can then map onto uh, an appropriate policy um, to tell it, you know, well, I should be, um, now I should pull arm A, now I should pull arm B. And then it turns out that you can actually take the system and um, and it can learn to do something that looks close to uh, Bayes optimal. Hmm. So if I can just define, uh, it, it, this is why we use uh, a bandit at first is because these sort of Bayes optimal solutions already exist. Um, and so that you can compare against them. So these called like these Gittins indices. And so, uh, yeah, over the course of sort of many it, training episodes, you can, you can get an algorithm. Um, you can learn a, uh, a policy that can perform sort of, um, close to, to these base optimal solutions. Um, and it turns out that also if you apply it to even like to harder, um, task distribution to harder tasks, um, that maybe are not just sing- a single step bandit, but are, um, some sort of MDP or some sort of, uh, task where you need to, First, gain information and then um, exploit it. Hmm. So, um, if you, uh, so these kinds of tasks sort of can have arbitrary structure. So, um, whatever kind of structure that um, that you want your uh, your task distribution to have, um, the like meta RL um, agent will eventually be able to learn that, and it will eventually be able to leverage that in order to f- perform really well within the, um, the span of an episode. But you, I, I, you haven't really talked about because you have to present, you know, multiple different tasks to this network for it to be able to um, yeah. meta-learn, essentially. But those tasks have to have some similar structure among them. So exactly. there is that constraint. Yes, yeah. Um, and this is related to um, kind of the, the free, like the, there's no free lunch theorem, mm-hmm. right? So there, um, so, so, so this is a theorem that's essentially saying that, you know, um, a given algorithm is never going to be better than another one if you're sort of testing on all possible problems. So the key is that you need to have some kind of structure in the problems. And if your algorithm sort of can pick up on the biases um, that match that that particular structure that exists in your problems, then you're going to do better um, than than another given sort of solution. Um, so So that's the whole key to meta learning is that you're able to pick up on these inductive biases hmm. and these priors. You can learn them um, as opposed to, for instance, um, you can, you can, you know, handcraft them in, you can build them in, which is the case with more sort of like Bayesian solutions. So I can, I can define a Bayesian solution, which is going to perform optimally on this particular task. Um, but then, but then I need to do that for every single kind of task. Um, whereas, you know, meta learning, like meta RL is, is sort of like a general purpose method for you to say, um, oh, I have, I have a, a task distribution. I'm just going to try and learn that structure. And then I don't mm-hmm. need to sort of like define it by hand. Yeah. And so, so the relationship of this to, um, to like the neuroscience aspect of it, which is in that, uh, the nature neuroscience paper that, um, that we published in 2018 is that, um, it turns out that you can find signatures of this in the brain as well. So um, we had a series of, I believe it was like five or six um, neuroscience, you know, experiments that are just taken directly from, from the neuroscience literature. They've already been published. And we can look at, um, you know, the behavior and the, um, the 
sort of like neural activity of animals that were trained and, and also humans um, that were trained in these tasks. And then we can train our RL algorithm, you know, our meta RL agents on those same tasks. And it turns out that we can find sort of sig- like similar signatures in our meta RL agents that exists uh, in humans or in animals and the same kinds of behaviors as well. And to me, the magic in the story, because I, I actually sh- still kind of struggle to think about this is you know, you have the slow outer loop uh, training the faster inner loop. And then at some point you turn off the training, you, tra- you turn off the weight updates. So then you just have this recurrent network and learning can still take place in the recurrent network in the dynamics of the recurrent network without the weights being updated. And it's like magic because so, so, there, so then there are two things that are driving the learning in the dynamics there's the rewards still coming in from doing the tasks, and there's the internal mm-hmm. hidden state uh, history that can just get shifted around in conjunction with incoming rewards to alter mm-hmm. its behavior. And that seems like magic to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 magic, but it's also very uh, very smart for um, for evolution and, and biology to have like come across, right? Because um, a lot of times you have things that change in the moment. You have sort of, um, you know, constantly uh, like new observations that you sort of need to adapt to. Um, and yeah, the thing about this work is that that we're able to sort of point to prefrontal cortex as being um, the place where sort of this fast inner loop of adaptation is happening. That we can like find signatures of this, um, of being able to adapt to sort of changing uh, context or changing incoming rewards and observations. And, and that's what allows us to sort of within minutes be able to adapt to um, a, a new situation. Whereas, you know, we know that sort of synaptic plasticity and things that um, that require uh, maybe like protein synthesis um, and or like long-term plasticity. These are things that happen on the timescale of, of much longer. Yeah, so this is the that, that more outer loop um, adaptation or, or learning process yeah, that we think sort of like is mediated by maybe dopamine and um, by like synaptic weight changes in like basal ganglia and things like that. Yeah, so it, it's nice that that we can sort of, in a rough sense, I wouldn't say that we we have an exact sort of mapping um, to the brain, right, right, but right. it's it's nice that we can sort of see an, uh, the same sort of a system in um, in a biological system that that we find in an RL agent, in a meta RL agent, if we, that just sort of like naturally emerges if you, um, if you have these, you know, ingredients uh, set up, if you have like a, a task distribution that has structure in it, if you have recurrence, if you have um, this sort of like model-free form of reward-based learning, and mm-hmm. that you just like sort of get the meta RL to, to emerge from that. Yeah, it's really cool. The, and those two papers that you were just talking about, that we were just talking about, are among uh, a few others that are highlighted in this recent review that you guys have written about deep reinforcement learning. And deep meta-reinforcement learning is one part of that uh, story. And so I'll, I'll point to that review as I'll you know, point to both the papers that we just talked about and this recent review about deep uh, reinforcement learning. And um, so we don't need to talk you know, about deep reinforcement learning, but th- that's, like, that's the big rage right now, I suppose. And a lot of what you guys are are working on, but are you? Because I want to make sure we get to your newer work here. But um, are you still working on the meta reinforcement learning 
PFC dopamine story? Is there more coming or is that um, is, not, is that now a thing of the past? Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a thing of the past. So <laughs> I'm still I'm still working on uh, on meta learning. Yeah, it's it's not like I'm done with it. You know, <laughs> I'm still quite well, like interested. Yeah. So I guess the one of the things that we're interested in is trying to test um, some of the uh, the hypotheses that were made in the original paper to see if you can. That's the um, the ultimate test of a of a good hypothesis or theories that you can you can test it at some point and, Falsifiable. and confirm yeah. or yeah confirm or deny it so there's uh you know we're interested in in looking at, at how we can do that i think one one challenge to try and uh and and do that in particular is that uh well it turns out that that well, I, I mentioned i mentioned earlier as well but um in neuroscience there's not as much um work that's being done in looking at the learning process itself so a lot of times, um, if you have an animal and you're, uh, and you have a particular task paradigm, usually you train the animal first to ceiling, like, like to perfect performance or some kind of like, you know, steady state performance. And then you start doing neural recordings. Most people don't do neural recordings during. And so, um, that's sort of one challenge in trying to like falsify, mm. um, this theory. But in general, it's also just interesting to think about the kinds of uh, like, like so, so I've I've been reached out to a lot by neuroscientists that are curious as to you know well what can I do with this um, you know like how can I incorporate the the learnings from this into into my work and you know how can I uh, what kind of lessons can I take away and and how in particular how can you sort of like close that uh, that loop back from AI to to neuroscience. And you tell them you can't because you're too slow, right? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> um, no. I, I, I encourage them to, uh, to maybe, yeah, to to think about look looking at the in particular that learning process itself, um, and to look at you know, what are the signatures of meta learning as opposed to just sort of learning in that inner loop. And can we identify those? Can we look at some uh, an animal that is at the beginning of learning and compare that to an animal that's at the end of learning? When I say learning, I mean sort of like, I guess training, mm -hmm. um, where if you, if you train an animal, that can take, you know, months. And so, um, you know, I, I think it'd be really interesting to look at, you know, what's happening um, at the beginning of, uh, of training an animal, where I'm sure it's not, uh, at that point, it's probably just exploring, you know, it's, it's not, not really like doing much that's of um, quote unquote interest, maybe from an like the, from the task paradigms perspective. Um, but I think that it probably is quite interesting if you look at it from a meta learning perspective, because this is the this is what meta learning is doing. Is that yeah. you know, sort of like needed to construct the that inner loop? Yeah, it is interesting. When I was in my well graduate school and for my postdoc, I had trained monkeys. But in particular, in graduate school, I trained them on a. Uh, metacognition task. So they had to keep track of their decisions and then make a bet whether they think they made the decision right or wrong. And uh, that's really hard to train in a monkey. You know, it took months. Um, and uh, but and, and so, you know, you, you'd spend those months without recording any neurons. And then finally, you'd get them all trained up and then you'd stick the electrodes in and, and record the neurons. And, I, you know, we even published like a little um, learning, behavioral learning graph over time but yeah, it's it, it'd be super interesting to have neural recordings and and come up with a story about about. Uh, I mean, in this case, it wouldn't have been meta learning, but come up with a story about the progress 
of, of that training regimen. That's a lot of work too. And I can imagine it would be messy and not an easy story to tell perhaps. Yeah. And I, I can totally sympathize with, um, with neuroscientists that, you know, that they don't want to do that because it is just <laughs> so messy. Like, how do you even analyze that? Um, and also recording for that long and, you know, chronically over months that that's also just its own special challenge. Oh, but yeah. 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 <laughs> Less so these days, but it's getting better and better. All right. We don't have that much time left. So I really want to talk about uh, altruism. And, uh, you know, this isn't even your most recent work. We, we, I could like reach into a hat and pull out any of your publications that we could have talked <laughs> about. But I don't know, this one's interesting to me. So the, the title of the paper is Evolving Intrinsic Motivations for Altruistic Behavior. Why is altruism important? I should back up. So this is part of um, multi-agent reinforcement learning. That's, uh, you know, pretty big these days yeah, yeah. in uh, multi-agent game playing and multi-agent meaning multiple AI agents that have to uh, work together to, you know, play a game, uh, perform a task. And, um, but that doesn't necessarily, so, so that means um, they have to cooperate, but altruism is, well, to my understanding, and maybe you, maybe you have a different understanding uh, than I do, uh, altruism isn't just about cooperation. So we'll talk about the importance of evolving the cooperative or altruistic behavior. But I'm just wondering, you know, why altruism is important. I'm not sure that oh, okay. hu- like, humans well, are terribly altruistic anyway. Well, the why I got interested in it. Yeah. Um, well, this is uh, sort of my first foray into like multi-agent RL, but I've always been just interested in how, how actors can sort of learn to coordinate behavior to accomplish sort of something bigger. Um, and, and how, in particular, how can uh, nominally sort of self-interested actors, such as RL agents, how can they come to coordinate um, to be able to, you know, perform altruistic actions and, and things that are sort of good for, um, for, for, for the whole, for, for everybody? Altruism is, to me, you know, a very important part of of human intelligence and an important part of, of why we are as, you know, successful as a species, um, as we are, uh, is, the, is because we are able to, um, sort of act for the betterment of everybody as opposed to just ourselves. Um, you know, humans are intrinsically social in nature. I don't know this. I don't know if COVID, uh, stands that passes well, that test. <laughs> I mean, I didn't say we're, we're perfect at it, but, um, but I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why we um, got to the level that we're at. And of course, there's always challenges. There's always sort of internal conflicts between our altruistic impulses and also you know, like acting in our own self-interests. But that's also the the interest that, you know, that's the source of fa- my fascination with it, because we do have these two sort of competing instincts. And um, how is it that we got to the point where we were able to um, come together and build a society and to build all that that we had built and and to be able to act. Yeah. I think a lot of people are, um, or at least they, they want to be altruistic and to act um, for the betterment of others and aren't just sort of in it for themselves. Uh, You're living in London. You're losing your American roots. I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I think I think maybe we we spent, uh, or at least I spent too much time on like Reddit and and Twitter and and just getting too 
um, bummed out by um, by all the bad bad actors out there. But I think in general, people um, people try to be good. Okay. All right. Well, so um, you you took a different approach because previous multi agent uh, reinforcement learning approaches they uh, have like hand engineered the uh, the altruism into the agents, right into the the way that the agents behave. But uh, you decided to uh, evolve it. So. Tell me about that. Why was it important to evolve it? And, and yeah, then we'll go from there. Yeah. So, so I mentioned before that, that there is this, um, that there, there's kind of this puzzle as to how, um, altruistic behavior even came about. Um, because if you think about, uh, yeah, from a, like a, an evolutionary perspective, why is it that we should act in, um, like altruistically or for the betterment of somebody else if it doesn't, uh, benefit myself if it doesn't allow me to sort of reproduce or to pass on my genes. Um, and so there's been a lot of different research into this and suggestions as to how it might happen. You can, uh, you know, some people or like there's been suggestions that it's this notion of reciprocity that you do something for somebody else with the assumption that then they will do something for you. Or there's also like kinship selection um, or even the fact that, you know, if you are in a closely knit group and you act sort of altruistically just within that group, then overall your group will tend to outcompete out of the other groups that don't do that. And, and, you know, hmm. eventually, you know, uh, you will, uh, your group as a whole will, will benefit from that. So I, I should preface, um, this by maybe like explaining what is the actual, uh, dilemma that we're even trying yeah. to solve. Um, so, you know, at DeepMind, we always work in games. And so we, we, we came up with a game for our agents to play that, um, sort of for us typifies this idea of, um, of a dilemma between acting in your own self-interest and in the benefit, for the benefit of everybody. So these are called intertemporal social dilemmas. And these are just generalizations of, um, of like matrix games, which, uh, like the most famous example would be like the pr- prisoner's dilemma. Um, and prisoner's dilemma for people who um, who haven't heard of it is essentially just uh, like this example of where um, you imagine that two criminals have been caught and they're being interrogated in two different rooms. And there's no evidence, or there's very little evidence to sort of convict either one of them, and so the the cops really want like uh, want a confession in order to be able to convict. And each of them have their own sort of decision points to make where uh, they can either choose to cooperate or to defect. If they cooperate, meaning that they stay silent, they don't sort of rat the other um, person out, then if they both do that, then um, they sort of both uh, will benefit in the long run. Um, or like they'll serve sort of a minimal amount of a sentence. Short sentence, yeah. But, yeah. but if they rat the other person out, sorry, if, if prisoner A defects but prisoner B cooperates... Um, then prisoner A would, uh, go, f- go free and then prisoner B would, um, have like the maximum sentence. But then if they both defect, um, then they both will serve sort of a medium amount of sentence. So, um, if you're acting rationally, you actually, uh, would always defect because, um, depending on like whether or not the other person cooperates or defects, um, it's always better for you to defect. But then if both of you defect, then, um, mm-hmm. you're both worse off. Than if both of you cooperated. So this is just sort of set up um, to where if you just act just strictly in your own best interest, then everybody is worse off. 
And so um, the intertemporal social dilemma essentially generalizes that to multiple time steps. So these matrix payout games is always just a single decision that you make. You choose to cooperate or to defect. Um, intertemporal social dilemmas um, sort of are just like these grid world games where um, the agents can choose to um, sort of walk around and they can collect apples um, or they can choose to, uh, for instance, clean a river um, and contribute to the public good and things like that. So, th- so they take multiple time steps to to sort of do. Mm. Um, and then they also uh, have this notion of that there's um, there's this tension between acting in your own self-interest in the short term. So if I collect this apple, then it's sort of, I get a lot of reward in the short term. Uh, but in the long term, it's worse off for everybody because um, I have uh, I have now depleted our source of apples. And so uh, this is the tragedy of the commons, where if everybody sort of raids the the, the common good, then it's it's just going to uh, be gone for everybody forever. And, you know, this kind of problem seems a little bit uh, maybe contrived, but it actually uh, typif- typifies a lot of um, like real world problems that we're facing now, such as climate change, um, mm. where, you know, we uh, a, lo- a lot of people are... Um, are sort of unable to act in the uh, in the long term interest of everybody um, because in the short term, you know, we we want to be able to continue sort of using as much resources as we want, and to you know, we would want to be able to have like short term rewards, um, even though in the long term we know that it's going to be worse off for everybody. So, um, so we know that this is a kind of a, an issue that I guess humans already um, are are not very good at solving, and so. That's let, for me. me say, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, well, so so that's one of the motivations for for um for me to study this in in these kind of multi agent RL settings. The the most important point is that you have these sort of two different timescales. Because you have these two different timescales, it actually is uh, a pretty perfect setting for meta learning, because meta learning sort of naturally has these like multiple timescales of learning, and uh, this is where evolution comes in because evolution can be thought of as um, sort of the mo- the ultimate meta-learner um, in my mind. Yeah. It operates on a very slow time scale, but um, within, say, a single lifetime, an organism learn like it has a lot of different um, learning strategies that um, has presumably been evolved or been sort of instilled in developmentally. And so this is, you know, why the decision was made to address uh, the evolution of altruistic behavior using mm. evolution. It, and the, the way that we do it is that we essentially um, are evolving like social signals that um, can be passed from one agent to another. So we have essentially um, a, what we call a reward network, which um, constructs the intrinsic reward that an, an agent can derive um, from social signals that are given uh, by other agents. Um, for this first work, we, we, for these social signals, we just used, um, sort of the observable external rewards that other agents are getting, like the, the number of apples that they're picking and so forth. But you can think of it as like, um, uh, I can, I can observe other agents being happy or sad. Like, are they smiling? Are they not smiling? Are That's they getting reward? Or... Reward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're social because they're sort of like passed between agent to agent. Um, and so if I, I can evolve over, um, over this kind of signal, um, and subject to certain constraints, um, such that we all sort of need to be playing by these same rules. We all need to be valuing these social signals the same way. Then, uh, it turns out that we can solve these intertemporal, um, social dilemmas. 
and we can get the um, evolution of altruistic behaviors, such as agents that refrain from collecting too many apples so that the, there's going to be more in the long term, or agents that will um, uh, perform a public good uh, action, such as cleaning a river so that more apples will grow um, for everybody. So it's interesting, the idea of creating and evolving agents that behave in some sort of optimally altruistic manner. Uh, it's interesting that you know they could far outstrip our own um, ability to do that. <laughs> I mean, is, yeah. that, is that the goal? <laughs> you know, because I mean, well, if there, so there are two things. One, it's just um, we could use what you're learning about um, how to create artificial agents. We could use that to sort of shape policy, right, and um, and our own behaviors. Uh, but the other issue, and I don't know what's more important to you, is that. Uh, in the future, when AI is, you know, just all, I mean, it's already all around us, but when we have these multi-agents, inter- AI is interacting with each other, well, they're going to need to be uh, constructed and constrained in such a manner as to be able to cooperate. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I think that the that this work can um, can address sort of both of those aspects, because, yeah, you can a- imagine um, a field of work where you take these uh, artificial sort of RL agents and um, you try and figure out what kind of system or what kinds of um, like intrinsic rewards can you give them such that then that they're uh, more likely to cooperate or they're more likely to sort of coordinate with each other. Um, and then you can try and see if like maybe that would um, sort of generalize to the way that humans act or behave and, and if, see if you can sort of induce more, more cooperative behaviors. Um, but similarly, it, it's also true that, um, you know, I, I don't think we can get away from the fact that humans are going to always be having to interact with AI agents. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think that any AI agent that we come up with is just going to be this monolithic sort of separate entity that will, will not need to be interacted with, um, uh, at all. Uh, I think that, you know, most likely the, um, most exciting kinds of AGI that we're going to come out, come up with, um, is going to be tightly interconnected with humans and is, you know, sort of going to be interwoven throughout our society. Um, and so we'll, uh, we'll need to have, yeah, we'll, we'll need to have a good understanding of what induces cooperative behavior, um, and what kinds of, what kinds of learning mechanisms or what kinds of like loss functions are going to be most important for us to get the behavior that, um, that we value and, and that allows us to get like ethical behavior, mm-hmm. um, from, from both these agents and from, from ourselves. So the, the main takeaway is that, um, having these evolved reward networks, which are sort of the, the important thing is that it's the same reward network that every agent plays with. So if, if, if they're playing together, we call it like playing together, but if, if we put together five agents, into um, one of these environments, then they all need to have the same reward network. Um, and then if we allow evolution of these uh, reward networks over the course of many sort of interactions between these different agents, um, then you start to see uh, cooperative behavior emerge. And then depending on the task, um, depending on if it's a public goods game or if it's a um, like a tragedy of the commons kind of game, then you get these different reward networks mm-hmm. um, that are useful for these different situations because they're different kinds of tasks. Um, so, so this is kind of the the power of of evolving it and letting it sort of like meta learn in a sense um, what should be the um, 
the correct sort of set of rules. So I, 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 to me, I can, I can broadly sort of interpret these reward networks as being the rules of play. So if I'm going to be engaging with a group of other agents or people, um, then we, we all need to sort of agree beforehand. That these are sort of uh, how we want to be interacting. These are the rules. And if they're a good set of rules, then it will allow us to sort of get good behavior out of everybody. How many different algorithms are out there or are in our heads for different situations? Well, I mean, infinite, right? Uh, like anytime you um, come into a different situation, I think you're always like sort of negotiating the the rules of engagement and maybe like just through communication, you, you can sort of like implicitly agree on uh, how we should be interacting with each other. You know, every like social network that you, uh, that you go on, like Twitter um, and you know, Reddit and like, they all come up, uh, come with their own sort of set of rules for how you interact with each other and so forth. So I think it's really interesting to think about these kinds of things, um, to different systems that people can interact with each other under, um, and it induces different kinds of behavior. Why do I hate Reddit so much? Why can I not get in? Everyone tells me I need to <laughs> do, I need to be more into Reddit and I get nothing from it. I don't understand why anyone uses it. I, <laughs> like reddit i think it's i think it's super fascinating and and also twitter like the kinds of um information that you can get from it i mean maybe maybe you just need to follow different subreddits i don't know (laughs) i'm trying like but i i get next to nothing from twitter as well i just don't want to ah this is too long of a uh, (laughs) of an aside but um i I can see why they'd be useful to people go ahead i i will say i think we are just at um we're very embryonic in terms of our understanding what kinds of social networks um, are most useful for communication? And, you know, I think right now uh, a lot of social networks are built to sort of generate advertisement revenue or to like increase engagement most uh, like, first of all. So I I don't think that they're necessarily built to incentivize good communication. And that's Mm. probably why a lot of times you would find them like sort of upsetting or like, um, or or that, that they're very distracting um, because they're not right now, I guess, built to do that. And I think that it is important for us to think hard about what kinds of, of systems would allow us to engage uh, best with each other and to come up with ways to, um, I don't know, better coordinate and to form like useful collective action um, and to coordinate with each other in altruistic ways and so forth. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. So I, I definitely think that there's a lot uh, of work to um, to be done on this front. Yeah, agreed. Well, uh, I know I've already taken you over time here, and we had planned because I, I know that you're interested in AI ethics, and we we planned to talk a little bit about that. But instead, I'm going to have to. Uh, I'll email you in a couple weeks, and then you can say you're too busy, and then I'll <laughs> wait another year, and then I'll email <laughs> you again, <laughs> and and maybe you can come back home because we really never talk about uh, ethics on the show, and I know that's like a big um, topic of interest publicly as well. For now, I, my my last question, random um, Patreon supporter question here. Uh, what's one b- before we before I let you go? What's one book that you would recommend uh, people read? And it could be you know that that's been important to you, or that uh, it doesn't have to be even a science book. Uh, yeah, one book that I read recently um, that you know is related to AI that I quite liked is called Human Compatible by Stuart Russell, um, which is essentially. You know, asking the question of how can we ensure that an advanced artificial intelligence is going to be able to um, well align with human values. 
and uh, to be safe to interact with. Oh, another another book that I read, um, which I think uh, I think is is very good, is um, Algorithms to Live By. They're making they're making a second um, part and um, interviewing a bunch of people and because oh, they yeah? had such, yeah, such yeah. success with the audio version of that one. I had Tom on the show, so I, oh, I like that book great. too. So yeah, yeah. I can recommend that as well. Yes, yeah, that that one's definitely one of my uh, my favorite recent books. So thanks, Jane. It's been a long time coming. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and continued f- fortune at DeepMind. Thank you very much. Yeah, and I, and I look forward to coming back in a year and a half. <laughs> Good, good. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.